every portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount should drive you towards Him specifically as a Lord, as a King, as a Redeemer. You cannot properly appropriate Jesus' teaching to your life unless you are willing to cling to Him as your only hope. This is Beholding Christ, and I'm Matt Williams, your host. Welcome to part six of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom, from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul is taking us eventually through the entire Sermon on the Mount, found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters five through seven, an amazing sermon by our Lord Jesus. During October 2022, Pastor will focus on chapter five, which may be one of the most important passages in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are nine blessings pronounced by our Lord with values and attitudes preparing His followers to live in Christ's kingdom. Pastor Paul taught Friday on the first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit, found in verse 3 of chapter 5. Today, we'll move to the second Beatitude, Blessed are those who mourn, found in verse 4, an equally difficult behavior to understand. In ancient days, and in some cultures even now, professional mourners were retained to cry out at funerals. Are these to whom Christ is referring the recipients of God's blessing? Hardly. Here's part six of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom. As we began our study in the Beatitudes last Sunday, I commended to you considering the Sermon on the Mount to be an invitation. As Jesus preaches this sermon, the first extended teaching discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, he offers an invitation. He gives an invitation to his disciples, he gives an invitation to the crowds around them, an invitation to a way of living, a way of thinking, an invitation by which we would order our steps. The invitation, I suggested, is to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing. All the way through the sermon, the kingdom is in view, but it is acknowledged that it is not yet. The kingdom is not now, it has not arrived, now is not the time for the kingdom But Jesus instructs us so as to live in light of the kingdom. He teaches us to live in the reality of a sin-cursed world. The sermon acknowledges frequently the sin that abounds around us and that remains within us, but it does so in light of acknowledging the coming kingdom. It is not only kingdom-oriented, it is Christ-centered, Rightly understood, every single portion of this sermon drives you towards Christ. Properly understood within its context, every portion of 
Jesus' Sermon on the Mount should drive you towards him specifically as a Lord, as a King, as a Redeemer. You cannot properly appropriate Jesus' teaching to your life unless you are willing to cling to him as your only hope. Therefore, the sermon is Christ-centered. And finally, it is an invitation to flourishing. Jesus does not intend to create a burden by which to crush you. He does not intend to weigh you down with his teaching. As we've already heard this morning, it is in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is in Matthew's gospel that Jesus speaks those words, which is so telling Because as you read the Sermon on the Mount, you are supposed to understand this is not intended to be a rod for my back. It is intended to be every single step of the way a means by which I flourish in this life. Jesus cares for your flourishing. He cares for your joy. He cares for your happiness. And so, all the way through, the sermon is an invitation to a way of living, kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered, flourishing. The Beatitudes, perhaps the most well-known portion of the entire sermon, function in many ways like a table of contents by which we can get into the sermon, Which is not to say that the Beatitudes have a corresponding text later in the sermon. It's not what I mean when I say a table of contents, but rather in a a broader thematic sense, Jesus is introducing us to key ideas that he will then develop and return to throughout the rest of the discourse. If you come to terms with the Beatitudes, you are ready to read rightly the rest of the sermon. And so if the sermon is an invitation to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, so also are the Beatitudes, both taken holistically and individually. As you read each individual Beatitude, it in itself is kingdom-oriented, it is Christ-centered, and it is an invitation to flourish. This morning, the beatitude in view for us is verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As with last week, I want to consider exactly how this is an invitation, how it should operate in our lives, and I want to spend most of our time thinking through exactly what it means to mourn, to spend most of the morning thinking about what it is to grieve to spend some time thinking about the comfort that is coming. But before we get there, it's appropriate to think afresh upon that initial word, blessed. By way of review, what does Jesus mean when he says blessed? You'll remember last week I explained there is an Old Testament precedent in view, which is wonderful and helpful, though in this case it does create an interpretive issue Because in the Old Testament scriptures, there are two words, different words, which come to us in our English Bible with the one English word, blessed. And the question is, which of the two Old Testament words did Jesus have in mind when he pronounces 
blessed. Again, by way of review, one of those words has a kind of action-reaction sense to it. One of those words has a, a causal chain in view. Deuteronomy chapter 26 is perhaps the most helpful chapter to visit in order to see this kind of blessing in action. It's there that God says, if you obey my words, the reaction, the effect will be your barns will be full of food. Your fields will be ready for harvest. You'll know physical, material abundance, cause, action, reaction. That's one of the words that gets translated as blessed and speaks very much of God intervening in our lives in a very special and deliberate manner. The other word that is translated blessed in the Old Testament scriptures is that in which we find, for example, in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. Notice in Psalm 1, there is not an action-reaction. There is not a causal chain given to us. It is not there that the psalmist is saying, if you read your Bible, your storehouses will be full. That kind of blessing, different word from Deuteronomy 28 and other places, does not speak primarily of God's intervening in our daily lives in a special, extraordinary way. It speaks of a flourishing. It speaks of a, a manner of living. Meditate on God's word day and night and life will go well for you. Life will go well for you because your perspective will be shaped by your time in the word. You will start to make wise decisions and not foolish decisions. And the wise decisions will bring happy consequences. The psalmist is not promising that God's going to intervene in an extraordinary way so that now you find your storehouses are full, but rather over time as you are disciplined to give yourself to God's word, you will flourish. That's all review, and I argued last week as we read the Beatitudes, the word blessed in our Bibles has in view that second kind of Old Testament blessing. Not a cause, action, reaction kind of relationship, but rather a way of flourishing. We don't see in the Beatitudes an attendant list of curses, which you often find in the Old Testament when that first blessing is in view. Blessed will be the man that does this and his storehouses will be full. And just a few verses later, cursed is the man that disobeys my word, his storehouses will be empty. We don't see in the immediate context those curses being promised by Jesus. Equally, if you think holistically about the whole sermon, throughout the whole sermon, Jesus is projecting a way of living. He's telling us how to live our lives and he gets into all of the details. So it seems like he is compelling us to a way of ordering our steps that will result in flourishing. And thus it would be entirely appropriate in the Beatitudes to translate these verses, flourishing of the poor, happy are the meek, rejoicing are those who are merciful. Now, as I explained all of that last week, I pointed out a tension that quickly arises Last week, chapter 5, verse 3, rejoicing, happy, joy-filled are the impoverished in spirit. 
It makes no sense from a worldly perspective. How can those who are spiritually bankrupt be those that are joy-filled? As much as there is a tension there in verse 3, even more so in verse 4. Consider now our text for today. Blessed, happy, joy-filled, flourishing are the mourners, those grieving. Happy are the unhappy. Even more so, we see this tension in the text. And so we are now bound to reconcile that tension, to consider and turn around in our minds, how on earth could Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? At least to some degree, the tension is alleviated by noting that when Jesus projects a way of flourishing in this life, by no means does he anticipate that Christians would be those with smiles on their face every single day of their lives. Jesus is painfully honest about the trials that come to those that follow him. And by no means is he suggesting that to follow Jesus is to have a smile on your face every day. Rather, he's saying to follow this teaching, to adhere to me and my word is to place yourself in a happy position, a joyful state, a sphere of flourishing, not that you will smile in each and every day, but that life in totality will now go better for you. That perhaps alleviates the tension for us, at least to some degree, but there is more to say, more to consider, and this is where I want to now start to think through what exactly does it mean to mourn? How should we understand this mourning that Jesus is directing us towards? The first thing to note is the word that he chooses here speaks of an intense mourning. The word that he chooses here speaks of an intense grief. Many years ago, when we were expecting our first child, we discovered that friends of ours were expecting at the same time. And so it was fun and exciting to walk through our first pregnancy with this couple who were friends of ours, and we knew that we would be welcoming our babies into the world around about the same time. Isla came three weeks early. She caught us by complete surprise. We didn't have our hospital bag packed. We weren't ready. And then we discovered we were parents and learning the joys of no sleep. <laughs> when we thought we had three weeks still before she came, and then baby Benjamin, the baby of the other couple, came just a week later. And there were problems. There were complications such that he was only in the world for a few days. And then he went to be with Christ. And I remember the funeral in the program. The mother wrote a note trying to explain her grief. And I remember so clearly in her note, she said the the grief is so intense, it is almost physical. She said, it almost feels like a physical pain. There is a dark cloud that has been cast over everything. And that is the kind of mourning that Jesus is speaking of here. 
Now, he's not speaking of a mourning because of a relational or a physical loss. That is where you and I experience it most readily in this life, but that's not what Jesus has in mind when he says, blessed are those who mourn. The Beatitudes speak of spiritual realities, and especially in light of the previous text, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, it seems that Jesus here is speaking of a spiritual mourning, not of a relational or a physical loss, but a spiritual mourning. And specifically, the mourning of which Jesus speaks is a mourning over sin, a grieving because of the reality of sin. So you notice first and foremost the progression of thought. Don't think of the Beatitudes as a haphazard list wherein each Beatitude has no relation to the Beatitudes surrounding it. There's a progression of thought here from verse 3, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We spoke last week about the need to be spiritually impoverished, but not only that you are, that you would acknowledge you are. We're all spiritually impoverished, but do you confess that reality? And now, by way of a progression in the argument, it is not only that you acknowledge that reality, but that you grieve it. You grieve the fact that you are spiritually bankrupt. You are mourning the presence of sin. And that mourning is multifaceted. It is undoubtedly a mourning that begins with the presence of sin in your life. You grieve the fact that you are a sinner. You grieve and you mourn that sin is a reality in your life. You are burdened and saddened and grieved that each and every day you sin. You act and think and speak in such a way so as to rebel against your good, loving, heavenly Father's decree. And that reality, the reality of sin in your life, grieves you. The morning goes on from there to notice the persistence of sin. It is not only the presence of sin that you are a sinner, but that you can't stop being a sinner. You are always a sinner. As David prayed in the Psalms, my sin is ever before me. You grieve with the acknowledgement that your sin precedes you. Your reputation is that of a sinner. From the heavenly perspective, apart from any work of Christ in your life, your reputation is only that you are a rebel against God. Persistently so, you are a sinner and therefore you mourn. Not only that, but you mourn the consequences of sin in your life. The presence of sin and its persistence, but so also the ramifications. You are ready to acknowledge that oftentimes the misery that you feel in this life has been brought about by your own sin. Often. The hardship and the struggles that you feel in this life is brought about by your rebellion against God's commands. There are always consequences to sin. 
And you are honestly looking at and assessing your life and knowing that you have brought about consequences, not only in your life, but also in the lives of others. And you grieve the fact. You grieve the presence and the persistence and the consequences of your own sin. Now, it doesn't stop there. We said this morning that Isaiah 61 is the primary theological backdrop for the Beatitudes. Read through it afresh this afternoon and see how many correspondences there are between Isaiah's words and Jesus' words in Matthew 5. You don't need to turn there now. Let me just read to you afresh some of the verses from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, and to give them the oil of gladness. The point is, Isaiah's mourning was corporate. As Isaiah spoke of a mourning person, he only pictured them amongst mourning people grieving people, a a burdened community. And the message of salvation he speaks is not individualistic primarily, but its emphasis is on the corporate, the communal aspect of the deliverance. There are many prisoners in this prison cell, says Isaiah, and in total they will be set free. And the point as we read Jesus' words, blessed are those who mourn, is that we would not limit our grieving to our sins alone. There is a proper sense in which we would grieve for other people's sins. It would begin with grieving for the sins of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It would begin in the local church. A thoroughly biblical concept is to grieve and lament the presence of sin in other people's lives. The Apostle Paul spoke of this when he wrote to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says to them, I fear I will have to come and mourn many people's sin. My fear is that I'm going to have to come to you and afresh to mourn their sin. You see, this may sound new and novel to you, but that is only an indication of the individualism with which we tend to live out our Christian lives. You're listening to Beholding Christ. Living out the Beatitudes in our daily lives may seem impossible given our sinful nature, even when we are committed to following Christ. Pastor Paul has often said, quote, The only possible chance of obeying his commandments is by first being saved. But how difficult is beatitude number two? It sounds a lot like happy are the unhappy. Even mourning a spouse or child's loss can't be what to mourn means in this beatitude. There is a much more Christ-pleasing kind of mourning. Pastor Paul has taught us that this mourning is an intense mourning over one's sin its power over the light within our souls, and its domination in this culture. But once we are repentant sinners, following Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit, our spiritual eyes see clearly the power of sin. To learn more about following Christ, 
come to our website, beholdingchrist.org. That's beholdingchrist.org. Select Resources, and there you'll find free access to a treasury of gospel teaching to help you. Beholding Christ is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you've been encouraged by this teaching program, we invite you to become a listener supporter by making a financial gift. Your gift makes you a partner in sending this Christ-centered message to thousands of listeners. You can make your gift of any size on our safe and secure website, beholdingchrist.org, beholdingchrist.org, select Donate. Join us tomorrow for part seven for more on the second beatitude, how mourning over our sins leads to flourishing. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.